you have your Bible, let's go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, can you pull me down just a hair? Thank you. 1 Peter chapter 3. Never thought you'd hear a preacher ask to be lowered in volume, did you? <laughs> 1 Peter 3. We're going to read today verses 18 through 22. So stand with me as we read from God's word. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. This is the word of God, and if you let it, it will change your life. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Pray with me. Father, I pray in this time you would put the word deep into us that you would obliterate the hard-heartedness that sometimes we put up against you. That God, you would blast through any hearts of stone that may be here. That you may give us hearts of flesh, hearts that are moldable in your hands. That we, like clay, would be conformed to the image that the potter desires. Father, would you work through your word in our lives, both now and in coming days. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated for, for Christ also suffered. Last week we talked about this verse and we talked about it in the context. First Peter is, is written to a group of people who are suffering, some of which are suffering currently, some of which are about to face suffering. And, and oftentimes we found ourselves in one of those two spots. You're either currently going through something or you're going to be going through something very shortly. Uh, have you been there? You're either currently right now in the middle of some problems. Right now we are, uh, as a family, we are in the middle of some problems. We have cars and I think uh, um, there's something wrong with every car we've got. I think the, the closest thing to being a, a good enough car is one we call Granny. Granny is a 1997 Buick LeSabre. That's why we call her Granny. And sometimes Granny is off her meds. Sometimes Granny has problems. When you turn on the windshield wipers, they don't always go off. So you have to be careful. Granny, Granny's, Granny's kind of funny like that. But Granny's in the best shape. One of our other cars is having issues. Another one has to, uh, we got to take this afternoon and take the key tomorrow to get transmission work done. Uh, we've just got all kinds of car problems. Maybe you've been in one of those cases where everything seems to go wrong at once. You might be in that kind of situation right now where you're going through all kinds of problems, all kinds of difficulty. Some of you have been facing medical problems and, and it just seems like every time you turn around, it, 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 you think it's going to get better and it just gets worse. Some of us, though, aren't going through it right now, but it's coming. We are facing 
uh, some sort of thing in the near future. Maybe you see it on the horizon. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's going to blindside you. But the fact is that we're all living these lives of suffering and, and sometimes the suffering is just generic to life. But sometimes the suffering comes because we are trying to follow God. And that's what's happening to Peter's uh, readers. They are, some of them are suffering because of righteousness. They're suffering because they're trying to do what's good. And he asked in verse 13, who is there to harm you when uh, uh, you're zealous for what is good? But sometimes you're going to go through that anyway. Even though you're trying to do what's right, there are times when you face suffering because you're trying to do what's right. And in trying to do what's right, other people are despising you and reviling you and persecuting you. And we talked about that last week. We talked about the fact, though, that when you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. In fact, a couple weeks ago, we read in 1 Peter chapter 2 that it's, it's God's grace when we undergo suffering. Part of the reason for that is because we're not alone in our suffering. Verse 18 tells us, for Christ also suffered. You see, when you are walking down this road of suffering for righteousness' sake, whether, whether you are trying uh, uh, to, to whether, whether you are walking this road knowing that you're going to suffer or whether it just kind of blindsides you, when you are suffering for righteousness' sake, you are walking in the footsteps of our Savior. You are following His lead because He also suffered. Now, there's a few things about in this verse that, that show us the nature of Christ's suffering. It, it shows us, uh, for example, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The suffering wasn't permanent. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. My suffering feels pretty permanent. I keep going through this. But can I tell you something? Your suffering has an end date. Now, it might not end until the day you die. But it has an end date. There is a point when your suffering is over. It might be that you go through various periods of, of suffering. It might be that sometimes the suffering is, is, is different than other times. But there's always an end date. But that suffering, that suffering has effect long past the end date. You might say that Christ's suffering was perpetually effective. He died once for sins. Why? Because he didn't need to die twice. As my dad would say, he did it right the first time. And because he did it right the first time, there's no need for any more sacrifice. There are some that teach that that, that sacrifice has to happen over and over and over again. Catholics that believe that every time you take the Mass, every time you take the Communion, that you're re-crucifying Christ and that He has to be re-crucified in order for that salvation to be applied to you once again. I'm telling you, that's not biblical. The Bible says that Christ died once for all sins. Once was enough. But not only did it happen one time, but that effect continues. Even today, we are saved by that same death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no need to repeat it because it's still good. It's still in effect. His suffering also was personally affective. So it was perpetually effective, but it's also personally affective. Effect is it works. Affect is it makes an impact. 
Look, look at the impact. The righteous for the unrighteous. My mind hears that, and I think back to Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. You see, this one righteous one, this one who is able to fulfill the law of God, this one who is able to live by the standard that God sets for all of us, makes it possible for many to be righteous. He is righteous, and because he is righteous, it makes an impact on us, and we become righteous because of his righteousness. It's personally effective. It doesn't just apply, generally speaking. It doesn't just apply to some them somewhere over there. It applies directly to you and me. It's also, this suffering, purposefully enacted. The next phrase says, that he might bring us to God. Brantley, I need you to stop. Take out the word us and put your name. That he might bring Linda. That he might bring Larry. That he might bring Susie. That he might bring Mitchell. That he might bring you. He didn't just suffer just to suffer. He suffered for you. And he suffered for me. And he did it on purpose. Sometimes we wonder whether our suffering matters. Whether the suffering is just in vain. I'm trying to do the right thing. And the more that I try and, and I'm just suffering through it. And one day the suffering will be over and I'll be past it. And, and, that, and that'll be it. But can I tell you something? Your suffering has a purpose. God uses the suffering that you go through. When you are suffering for righteousness sake, he is using that to build you, to craft you, to shape you into his image. He's not just making you suffer just because you deserve to suffer. He's not just making you suffer because he gets pleasure in you suffering. He doesn't just make you suffer just so he can rescue you from the suffering. He's using the suffering to shape you to be like him. You see, he used Christ's suffering. Um, Philippians chapter 2 says that he became obedient. You don't, you're not born obedient. If you doubt that, just find a baby. They have a really hard time being obedient. They sit there and they coo at you and you think, oh, this is such a precious thing. But it doesn't take long before they want something. And you tell them no. But they want it anyway. We're not born obedient. We have to be taught obedience. We have to become obedient. And even Christ, God in human flesh, became obedient. Now, that doesn't mean he was disobedient before, but he still had to follow through. He still had to obey the words of the Father. He still had to obey the commands of the Father. And so much so with us, too. And it's in that suffering that he becomes obedient by, by dying even on a cross. And it's oftentimes through that suffering that we become obedient too. We try to do God's will and we begin to suffer. And the question becomes, are we going to follow through? Or are we just going to fall away? Your suffering has a purpose.
just as Christ did, so does yours. And it's the same purpose, to bring you to God. It's just instead of bringing you into the throne of God, it's to keep you drawing closer to him. This word, actually, uh, the, the word that's used is the word to lead us to God. I used to think that God, that Christ opened the door so that I could go in. No. It's more like a shepherd saying, come on, come on, this way. Guide me along. I'm wandering over there, so he takes that staff and he pulls me back. That little crook. <laughs> Get back over here. The crooked stick, the, the hook stick, not, not, a, not a criminal, okay? Just takes that and he pulls me back in line. No, you need to go this way. He leads me in. You don't just walk into the king's uh, court. You're escorted into the king's court. Somebody brings you before the king. Here's Christ bringing us before God. And he does so through his suffering. It's painfully accomplished too. Put to death in the flesh. Don't think for just a minute that Jesus was just some sort of spirit, some sort of hologram, some sort of not real person that didn't really have to go through the suffering. No, he, he endured it. He was put to death. And I don't care. I don't care what you might think, what picture you might have of Jesus on the cross. It's a whole lot worse than what you've pictured. It was a gruesome, terrible death, but he did it anyway. That suffering was permanently approved. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That does not mean that he was only spiritually alive and his body stayed in the tomb. No, his body was resurrected too. All of him was resurrected. But in the power of the spirit, he rose. That's a sign of God's approval, by the way. In which, verse 19 says, in, in, in that spirit, that same guidance of God's spirit leading him into the wilderness after he was baptized to be tempted, it's that same spirit that's leading him now to proclaim to the spirits in prison. Now, I have to confess my limitations as a human being. I have no clue who the spirits are and where the prison is. There are different theories. There are different thoughts. The only thing I could think of as I poured over this verse, as I tried, as I tried to study it and as I tried to figure out what does it mean, the only thing I could think of is, wait a minute, I was imprisoned. There was a time where I was imprisoned, where I was shackled, where my sin held me captive. I thought about Isaiah 61.1, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach what? Liberty to the captives. Now, even the rabbis, even the Jewish scholars know that's Messiah it's talking about. And there was a time in my life where I was captive, where I was held in chains of sin. But then Christ was proclaimed to me. And it wasn't just that somebody came along and told me about Jesus. It's that God, through his spirit, put that word deep into my heart and showed me that's true. And I really believed. In fact, take your hymnal. Turn to hymn number 347. We're not going to sing it because Jim doesn't know it. And I don't really know the, the, the music. I don't even know if Linda knows how to play it. This is Charles Wesley writing about his experience where he was set free. Listen to his words in the third verse. It's not marked with the little thing because they don't suggest you sing it, but I'm going to suggest you read it because, man, does he put it well. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay. 
fast bound in sin and nature's night. You ever been there? Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I wish I could write like that. <laughs> Man, doesn't he express it well? See, that was my story. I was imprisoned, and Christ saved me. The word of God came to me, set me free, broke the chains of my enslavement. And so I don't care who he preached to, except that I know he preached to me, and I know that word is still going forth to those who are still in prison, and God is still proclaiming his truth so that others can be free too. Because they formally did not obey, verse 20 says. I formally did not obey either. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, think back to the days of Noah. Noah's 600 years old. And the Bible says that he took his wife and his three sons and their wives and they went into the ark and they gathered all the animals. They, they went into the ark. God shuts the door of the ark and then the rains start. What you may not have noticed in that story was that that ark didn't take a few days to build. It didn't take a few weeks to build. It took 120 years. Now you thought you had a long honeydew list. 120 years. That's a long time to be working on a boat. And that's a long time for the God of heaven to wait patiently to offer repentance before exercising judgment. While the ark was being prepared, God was waiting. God was giving men the chance to turn away. Don't you know that people came and laughed at Noah and he told them, he warned them? Don't you know that he tried to get people to come on to the boat? Don't you know that he said, the judgment of God is coming? And don't you know they thought of him as a crackpot preacher? He's building a giant boat. But in that ark, eight people were rescued from judgment, being brought safely through the water. The Bible says. Then he draws a parallel. He says, baptism's kind of like that. Baptism, which corresponds to this, just as those eight people pass safely through the water, protected from the judgment of God by the instrument of God's deliverance, so and, and this baptism pictures that same thing. He says it now saves you, uh, skip down to the end of the verse, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not that the baptism itself saves you, it's that this baptism demonstrates that God's resurrection of His Son is what is saving you. You are put in the boat of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead and you pass through the waters of baptism as a judgment on your sins, but you are held safe because of Jesus Christ and what He has done. That's how you're saved. And if that's how we're saved... If it's through that resurrection, then that means that the suffering that Christ endures, that we also endure, ends with a resurrection of Christ that we also get to take part into. We are not just suffering with Christ. We are raised 
with Christ. Y'all didn't get it. Man, y'all didn't get it. Y'all are smart. Maybe I should preach this in a Pentecostal church. They'd, they'd be a little more expressive. The water ain't what matters. It's a picture. When, when we do baptism, I make a point to do a couple things. I make a point to um, give them the opportunity, whoever's being baptized, the opportunity to profess Jesus as their Lord. Okay? I make a point of that. But then, I also make a point to uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then I say this. I say, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. The whole point of it is that by going through the water, you are being buried in your sins. You are dying to your sinful nature. And then when you are pulled up from the water, it's a picture of God bringing you new life. Now, it's not that God brings you new life when you come up out of the water. He's already done that. It's just a picture for everybody to see. It's just a visual representation that shows that you've passed through the judgment of God and now you've been reconciled to him. He says, Peter says, baptism doesn't save you by itself. It's baptism through the resurrection of Christ. It doesn't clean you off. Might knock some dirt off while you're going down, but it doesn't clean your heart. God does that. But it shows that you have passed through God's judgment and now you live new. We're not saved by works, not even good works. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith in this Jesus, who, by the way, verse 22, has gone into heaven. He's in the place of authority. He's ascended up to heaven. By the way, he's coming back and he's going to take us there too. Notice all of this passage has, has brought us to being with Christ. We're with Christ in our suffering. We're with Christ in his resurrection. Eventually, we're going to be with Christ in heaven too. At the right hand of God. He's in the position of authority. We talk about the right-hand man. God's right-hand man is his son. Daniel puts it this way in Daniel 7. He says, well, here, let me read it for you. Let me get the wording just right because, man, it's a powerful image. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here we have riding on the clouds of heaven the Son of Man. And he comes to the Ancient of Days directly in the Father's presence and he's given dominion. But he's not given a dominion for the first time with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It's an interesting construction. He says, basically, it's already happened. It's already reality. God doesn't have to wait for his son to be in charge. He already is. 
And isn't it interesting that for the last couple of chapters, Peter has been focusing on us being subject to proper authorities, only to say now at the end of chapter 3 that all the authorities are subjected to Christ. It's almost as if to say, when you live your life according to these principles, you're living your life for me. You think he's trying to tell us something? I think he is. I think Peter's telling us that in the middle of our suffering, we're not going at it alone. We're with Christ. I think he's also telling us that one day we're going to be raised with Christ in the presence of his glory. And that makes the suffering a little more bearable today, doesn't it? He's going to tell us in the next chapter, since all this is true, live like it. There's a way that we ought to carry ourselves because of what Christ has done. This morning, we're going to celebrate a communion that reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. But it doesn't just remind us that Jesus is sacrificed. It calls us to live in light of it. It calls us to live in communion with one another. That's why we call it communion. There's communion with God. There's also communion with each other. You don't do communion by yourself for a reason. (laughs) Calm, community, union. (laughs) You kind of have to have more than one. But it also points us to a way of life that is trusting in Christ so completely. We're not only giving him our entire future, we're giving him our entire present. It points us to a type of life where we suffer for righteousness sake. When we're not afraid to endure the slings and arrows that come from living for God. It points us to the kind of life where we follow God's will no matter how difficult it is no matter how much it might hurt, no matter what people might say about us, no matter all the other things that we normally use as excuses, he calls us to live in light of him. He calls us to live the way we were meant to live. So this morning as we prepare to take the elements and give us an opportunity to remind ourselves once again why we do what we do. We're going to have some bread and some juice. It's not going to be a meal. It's not meant to be. It's meant to be just a tiny taste of what's to come in heaven. But it's also meant to be a reminder of what Christ has done. His blood spilt, his body broken. In the same way, we must be ready to be broken and spilt. Not for us, but for him. In the same way, we must be ready to live as living sacrifices. Even if we don't die, even if we're not persecuted to that point, we are still called to live for him. So as we prepare our hearts to take communion, I would ask you, are you ready? Pray with me. Father, this morning um, we recognize that what you've done for us has been so, so amazing, but so necessary. We, We are failures before you. You've given us a law, you've given us your statutes, you've shown us how to live, and we fail. We fail miserably. And Lord, we know but for your grace, we would be doomed in failure. We would be doomed for all eternity. But for your grace, we would be destined for hell. Thank thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for paying the price that we could not afford to pay. Father, I pray this morning as we prepare to take communion, I ask you first of all, to work in our hearts. Expose the sin that has so wrecked us. Father, we confess that sin to you. 
we ask you to cleanse us from our sins. Father, we also thank you for your forgiveness. Your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins. So, Father, we praise you for your grace and your forgiveness. Bless the taking of these elements as we remember what you've done and as we look forward to what you have yet to do in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.